I mean, I've read the Odyssey in a bunch of different translations, right? Like, and the the uh, the one that I started with was by uh, Richmond Lattimore, and that was the one that they gave us in high school. Yeah. When everybody starts with Lattimore, Matt, it's it, it's it's like the worst gateway drug ever. It's like if, if marijuana was as bad a gateway drug as Lattimore is a gateway drug for the Odyssey. Right? We would have won the war on. We would have won the war on uh, <laughs> yeah, epic <yeah>. poetry. <laughs> no, I was about to say the war on drugs would have taken a lot shorter than the war on Troy. Yeah, that's true. yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Um, the uh, you know Richmond Richmond Lattimore, right? Which is the most terrible way to start because I don't. I mean, I'm I'm sure it has virtues as a translation. I'm just not sure what they are. It's not like giving pleasure or you know instilling enthusiasm about the original work uh, in the 14 year old reader. But then, so in in college, you'll recall Matt that in the the great books class that we took, we read uh, the Fitzgerald translation, which I thought was fantastic. It was like a novel. I actually read the whole damn thing in two hours in my dorm room, which was in the basement as a freshman. One, uh, one I think as we were preparing for our finals or something, I was like, oh, poop, I need to read the Odyssey. Uh, and I um, got through it and it was like a, a page turner. Um, then, uh, then finally the last one was, uh, uh, the most recent one when I inflicted it on a bunch of high school students, uh, the English department that I was teaching in at the time, uh, set the, the Fagels translation, which is, is, you know, um, much more self-consciously a work of, a work of poetic art rather than, you know, as is the Fitzgerald, very kind of like very underhandedly a work of poetic, a work yeah. of poetic art. But the Fagel's translation is like a, a, meant to be a literary performance on par with the, you know, the performance of, um, uh, the performance of, of Homer standing, is standing up at one of these dinners and reciting. Well, I mean, this this makes sense in terms of like, yes, like you have the same overarching structure, right? And you have like sort of a wildly different level of appreciation for the quality of the art that you're understanding, right? So, but to what degree is this kind of refuting the value of the underlying structure in itself, right? Like to what degree, like if you can have better or worse translations of the Odyssey, like they all start, they all start in the middle and they go back to the beginning and then they keep going, right? And it's like, well, if this version of the, of the Odyssey is boring and that version of the Odyssey is exciting, then like to what degree is like the underlying structure of the Odyssey being relieved of its responsibility for informing the relative boringness or excitingness of the story? Right. Yeah. I've always been a terrible reader for plot until like the second, the second or third reading. I confess I'm like a sensation kind of junkie in, in reading novels or sort of long, long narrative works, you know, I'm, and I'm really, I'm really uh, invested in the moment to moment experience of what's going on rather than kind of seeing the big, seeing the big picture. So I, I, I definitely, and it takes a second or even a third reading to really um, see the structure. So it takes a, uh, a you know i don't know it it uh, i'm not i'm a bottom up person is is mm. what i'm saying yeah and i mean like when i think about kind of more mundane works that like rely on sort of similar sorts of structure i mean there is something to be said for it having some sort of impact on the overall excitingness of what you're watching right like although that could mean so like you know underworld is like this right like underworld starts it doesn't start with them being like oh no like all the vampires are dead and we have to send this death dealer out to deal with the werewolves and all this other stuff <laughs> it starts with the with the gunshots being fired on the subway station right like it's like it and yeah 
but that's but that doesn't quite answer the question of like is it necessary for the story to loop back right like yeah. is it you know is it is, is, it, is it right just- is, it, is it, it right i mean i feel like the, the necessary ones is something where where there's information that is revealed in the first scene that is meant to inform your view of the of the story that that follows so that like you know where the story is heading and the storyteller needs you to know that in order yeah. to to get what he wants you to, to get out of it. If it's just merely like here's some here's some action. I mean, an example from a classical literature that always struck me as very Hollywood is the Aeneid. Um, more so than the Odyssey because the Odyssey and I'm um, I'm a little rusty on this. It begins he's he's been with Calypso, right? Yeah. So he's basically which is a really weird, boring part of that story. Yeah, by the way, it's but not anyway. an action packed thing. Yeah. In the Aeneid begins with this. Uh, the, the boats are at sea, and Juno sends a storm to to sink them on on reefs. Yeah. Right. Not so Halle Berry, but like the other storm. The actual no, 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 yeah. Weather <laughs> Although yeah. that would that would be for the movie version of the Aeneid, which doubtlessly somebody is planning right now. <laughs> Hey, Matt, what happens to a Trojan struck by lightning? (laughs) (laughs) Same thing that happens to everything else. Anyway, continue. (laughs) It it does strike me as because because far far be it uh, from I to to second guess uh, Virgil. Um, but it does seem like he really just wants to get the story started out with a bang, and so he does this this spectacular sequence at sea with these boats about to be wrecked, and then it's sort of like a, man, how do we get into this situation sort of thing, and it's flashback to Troy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and you do sort of wonder, especially because in classical literature, the audience is assumed to know the story that they're about to hear, uh, that, that it's not as if we're introducing a new character or a new – I mean, in fact, the, the story being told in, in the Aeneid is the founding of the very city that all the people are citizens of, so it's got the biggest ghost ship moment of all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, that, so the question is – The found Rome, the, the Altai Moenia Romai yeah. moment. <laughs> Yeah. So, like, yeah, why yeah. why doesn't Virgil just start with the Trojan horse and move forward? Why does he need to start with the boats at sea, do that part, and then and then skip backward? Yeah. I or mean, the, there's I the mean, argument that. Oh, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. You you go. I was going to say there's the argument that he does it because Homer does it, right? Which is like, well, if all of the if all of the great poems that are uh, f- that have this sort of power to them and this sort of authority to them start in, in Medius Race and then jump back, then like I need to start in Medius Race and jump back too. Um, although, I mean, there are some other benefits to it. I, I mean, the big line to me that kicks off that part of the Aeneid is the whole "someday we'll look back on these days with pleasure." Right, like, um, which is like, and laugh. We'll look back on these days and laugh. And I can't recite the Latin to it anymore. But that's right there when he's trying to encourage the the sailors to move forward through the storm. And then there's a consonance there, which is like, you know, the relationship of the current audience with the the difficulties of founding Rome. Like, they know how the story is going to end. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that um, it helps for the character to start the story knowing some of what's already happened because the people who are watching and (laughs) reading the story, excuse me, also know something about what's going to happen. And so it puts the characters kind of on the same side as the audience. Um, so like maybe that that's it. I mean, another, I mean, you can compare it to the usual suspects, right? Where like, um, which the whole movie is about, you know, uh, uh, verbal Kent knowing things that other people don't know about what's going to happen in the movie. Right. And so it makes sense that it starts with letting the audience know about like this event. That's kind of like the seminal event of the movie, like the central event. Well, of the movie. It makes, I, I would actually argue that the usual suspects isn't even really an example of this because I think it does move forward linearly. It's the story of a, of a man, Charles Palminteri, trying to solve a mystery, and all the all the flashbacks are part of the story. But I, 
I feel like that's that's sort of baked into to the type of mystery story they're trying to tell is that you start with a crime and then you move backwards and try to figure out like what exactly happened and uncover right, the truth. Right, right. I mean, the Odyssey, so, yeah. for what it's worth, the Odyssey is the same way, right? Like the the beginning action of the book is. Uh, what Telemachus going? Uh, the I mean, the first four books are 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 what the Telemachia, right? Like they they Telemachus goes to see Helen and um, her actual husband Menelaus, right? And uh, by the way, it's like it's fantastic. The portrait of Helen Men- Menelaus in in uh, in the Odyssey is Menelaus, isn't it? I'm not I'm not misremembering. Yeah, no, Menelaus that. is the king of Sparta who's married to Helen in. in uh... In both before and after the events of the Trojan War, and yes. uh, and it's this uh, it's this great portrait of a couple that is sort of quietly at war uh, with one another and are just like passive aggressively sniping at one another, and it even it even sort of survives in in translation, right? And it it almost is sort of the story of of from the time that Telemachus you know gets involved in his father's rescue or not in his father's homecoming, like the story of him. Uh, him sort of uh, uh, coming home from there, and and you know the the it's all um, it's all worked in. I mean, the flashbacks are worked in to the structure. Yep, in much the same way, the goal is worked into the net in Slapshot. <laughs> no, go on, go on, go on. Uh, are worked into the structure of the story in, in much the same way, Matt, that you you were talking about with uh, uh, with the usual suspects, right? Like Odysseus tells uh, tells the story of his his life, and then later on in the twenties, in in like nineteen or twenty or twenty one or something like that, uh, book nineteen or twenty or twenty one, he comes to Ithaca and and. Um, and r- tells a false story of his life, right? Like he uh, he's in disguise and he tells a false story. So there are both um, there are both like real, real and false uh, uh, stories. But I think what Pete was saying was like that, or what you were saying that what we were all saying together. We're all saying all of us were saying together. <laughs> what the tradi- what the oral tradition of the overthinking and podcast was saying um, about uh, the audience knowing the story. Uh, is crucial, right? Um, and that this this is what distinguishes it from uh, uh, from the current practice in movies of like starting at an exciting scene and then jumping back to how we got here, returning to this yeah. moment in the narrative, uh, and then right and then going forward. That's different from the classical tr- way of starting in medias race because that's, you know, meant to just give you a uh you know, I don't know, give you some sort of narrative arousal, right? For um <laughs> for what uh for what is to come. Uh and that like oh, oh, oh hey, this movie's gonna get really exciting round about the hour twenty minute mark. So let's hang <laughs> in until then, you know. Yeah. It would be like it would be like if the first scene in The Godfather was just Al Pacino just walks into a bathroom, goes into a stall, takes a deep breath, pulls a gun out from the back of the tank, <laughs> like takes a deep breath, walks out of the bathroom, and then you hard cut to just the godfather two years <laughs> earlier. <laughs> <laughs> But so you're just like, wow, what's he doing in that bath? Why did he find that gun behind? And then the whole thing is sort of looping back to this moment where he makes the decision. And you could almost imagine like a modern screenwriter. And, and right now I'm really thinking about J.J. Abrams, who clearly <laughs> – I, I, I feel like there you can confuse um, 
complexity with with um like storytelling good right? <laughs> I, I don't know you, you know a movie that's really guilty of this that, that I, I i felt like really was just uh, uh, uh obscuring things for the sake of obscuring them was man of steel where the whole movie is told out of order for no good reason except that i feel like a screenwriter felt that it was more clever or more interesting to do it that way but in fact i just i feel like it's more distancing yeah, I mean, I think with that movie, it's also a matter of, like, you need to, I think we talked about this on the Man of Steel podcast back in the day, too, where it was like, we needed to figure out a way to get the action sequences to line up with 10-page intervals, and right. it was easier, like, it was easier to take all the Superman scenes and spread them out throughout the movie, <laughs> rather, rather than do it chronologically and have all the Superman scenes be focused on the time when he's actually being Superman, right? Like, and so it's like, right. an, it's, it's an immediate race of necessity rather than an immediate race of, of sort of uh, generation uh, or of, of, you know, but not necessity. Yeah, of choice, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. The <laughs> I mean, I race of choice. An interesting way to judge these might be to think about movies that have a very well-known immediate race and think about, like, how they would change if at all. You take it out. Like, so... Brad Pitt has Edward Norton at gunpoint and then it's literally like almost Edward Norton's uh, first person narration is like how did I get myself into this situation like yeah. let's start from the beginning um, yeah. and they go back to the beginning if you took out that that started with with I guess it would be Edward Norton uh, having sleep problems or Edward Norton at the meeting getting hung by meatloaf uh, with, it, with his giant boobs um, would the movie be any I mean I guess the big difference is that like you would you you know in the first version that it's, it's building up to this life or death moment where there is a bomb there's a guy being held at gunpoint you know that and, and when this when this Brad Pitt character is introduced you know that at some point their friendship will sour and become become deadly um, and does that I don't know does it make it a better movie to know that ahead of time oh my god guys I have just had the greatest realization of my life what? What is it? Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather from Los Angeles, California, uh, here with the panel to overthink uh, this week's topic. Panel, your question of the week. What are you in the middle of? What are you at kind of halfway through, <laughs> you know, in, in, uh, at the beginning of the inferno, uh, the, uh, the narrator says that midway in the through, middle of his years, yeah, yes. midway through his life's journey, he found himself in a dark forest. Right. And, and this is, let's, let's be clear. This is the actual inferno and not the cartoon version of the inferno that you could find on Netflix. The cartoon uh, version of the Inferno, which is based on the video game, which is a ripoff right. of God of War. Yes. <laughs> and you'll still maintain some strange similarities to the original. It's a that, long process. Is that, is that the, the video game where there were ads for it all the time where it was, ain't no sunshine when she's gone? Was that, I don't think so. That would have been, been perfect, but I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe. That's I don't pretty know. Much what the, that's pretty much what, what the Inferno is about. Well, I was I was going to make the point that that's that's not the inferno. That's that's Orpheus and Eurydice, right? Like there ain't no sunshine when when she's gone. Yeah. Uh, down to Hades. Um, no, I guess you you are right. You're totally right. I just looked it up. Uh, yeah. No, it's 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 they, Bill Withers. Ain't no sunshine. Commercials for the Inferno featuring a some sort of cover of the Bill Withers song. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. 
Uh, that's what Yahoo Answers says, and it's never steered me wrong. <laughs> I like that song. It plays on the commercial for Dante's Inferno. Anyone know what it's called? Bill Withers, Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. Haha, ha, just saw that commercial. Didn't even care about the game. I like the song. <laughs> the song is playing, or you can believe Andrew, who says the song playing is This Game Sucks by me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what are you, uh, what are you in the middle of? Uh, first in the alphabet, we're glad to have him this week. It's Matt Belinky. Hey guys. So I am in the middle of, as I have been for the past uh, for the past two years, uh, the Guns of August, which is a 1962 nonfiction book written by Barbara Tuckman, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. It is a, it is a classic um, history novel about the outbreak of World War One. And the reason I'm in the middle of it is I have it on my on my uh, Kindle solely for the purpose of putting me to sleep. <laughs> um, I recommend this wholeheartedly. Here's the thing: it's, it's very good. I don't. I don't mean to be. It, it's. I find it both riveting and fascinating, and unspeakably boring, <laughs> and also um, like soporific in the extreme. And literally, and and I have a. I have a, a random. I, you could turn to any random page and start reading, and within a couple of pages, you'll be you'll be tired. You'll have lost the will to stay up. <laughs> And keep your eyes open for any reason. Um, so I, I um, just because of the bore, the boringness of the prose, right? The boring quality of the prose, not because of the like the tragic loss of life or uh, you know the the just the tragedy of war and human suffering. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty it's pretty dense. Let me let me try to read you just a couple of sentences. You can stop me when you fall asleep. Uh, <laughs> Colonel Hoffman was standing outside the house in which German headquarters was located, debating the battle and the prospects for tomorrow with his immediate supervisor, Major General Greenart, with whom he expected to govern the weaker wills of Pritzwitz and Waldersee. Just then, a message was brought to them from General Slodge of the of the Twentieth Corps, <laughs> reporting that the Southern Russian Army was now along the frontier with four or five cars and advancing over a front fifty to sixty miles wide. Hoffman and the, there's just a lot of names. Oh, good. It feels like there's a lot of consonants in this. It's like really <laughs> necessary to aspirate everything that you're saying. She like never meant like an assistant chief of staff that she didn't feel was worth naming. Um, Matt, I, I just want to point out that if you want a much more interesting uh, introduction to the Great War, you can uh, watch Downton Abbey season two and listen to our uh, overthinking it recaps of Downton Abbey. Um, yes. which, but that, which, that, that, those will not put me to sleep. <laughs> which Pete is, is hosting with uh, Ben Adams and with me uh, talking about them. And you can get That's those. That's like the way to wake up in the morning. <laughs> you can yeah, like, exactly. It'll get you going. It'll get you down started right. With Guns of August and then the overthink you get reviews of Downton Abbey. Yep. Do you like how I just slipped that plug into the middle of the uh, into the middle of meteor mist? Uh Pete Fenzel, what are you in the middle of, sir? Oh, uh, I have most of the things I'm in the middle of are on Netflix, actually. <laughs> um, so I am in the middle of uh, the movie Slapshot, which I'm very much enjoying, but which I only really watched the first half an hour of the first time I watched through it. I know that there's a mill that's going to close. I know there's a bunch of uh, semi-professional hockey players who have to do a fashion show. I know no one wears helmets. And I know that there's sort of a generational thing, like a sort of Odysseus Telemachus thing with Paul Newman and this random Canadian dude playing hockey all the time. Uh, so yeah, so and I've been really surprised by how much I enjoy Slapshot. I particularly enjoy in Slapshot how there's a lot of like somebody starting to curse and then it being sort of like cut off or interrupted. Um, so because people are very uh, forward about how much they dislike the hockey quality that is of a fairly low and boring nature. And so they start like fuming obscenities and the movie kind of cuts them off. Uh, and to me, I think it, it shows the... Uh, 
it shows a certain truth about our culture and culture in general, even Canadian culture with its infamous mythical uh, courtesy, which is that like the times in which it is portrayed in our culture that people do not curse are fictions that censor the cursing that people are doing all the time. So if anyone tells you, like, we didn't used to speak like this, uh, they're lying. We used to speak like this. Like, right, yeah. Things. Well, in World War One or in, <laughs> in any war, in the Trojan War, right? Like, they, they were all uh, yeah. talking poop in the, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the trenches or in the tents. Um, yeah. Right, when uh, uh, Agamemnon steals your, steals your lady and, uh, and you rage, right. rage. In- Yes, indeed, indeed, definitely. So there's that. There's Slapshot. So I've wound up, I've wound up the stick, but I haven't yet brought it down. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, is that – do you, do you – uh, I, I, uh, I find that like my uh, Netflix recently watched banner, which is usually across the top of most of their interfaces on various devices, is usually like TV shows. And I just I, – it's the, to watch the next episode of the TV show. I generally go straight through a movie once I've committed to it, which is one of the reasons why my film viewing is a lot less uh, – takes up a lot less time than tv viewing because that like two and a half hours is you know especially for like summer blockbusters or prestige movies which are basically like the two the two kind uh, two kinds of movies because like apparently when you win the uh, when you play the game of cinema you either win an oscar or you die and by you die i mean thousands of people die because new york is blowing up in your, <laughs> in, your in your movie like do you watch films pete and then like cut them off in the middle, like take a powder, go live a week of your life and then come back to them. Oh, all the time, especially with Netflix. Sometimes I just can't handle it. Sometimes I really can't handle it. Uh, and I have to stop and I have to like take a breath and then I come back to it later. Oh yeah, totally. Films, are, TV shows. Yeah. Why are you watching these, these films that don't, that you don't enjoy, that don't give you pleasure? Well, actually <laughs> the opportunity this, cost is low. You know, it's Netflix. <laughs> I suppose this is though. This is the, I mean, Pete jumping ship from a, uh, from a film is very different. Like I remember one time Matt, when I was staying in your apartment, uh, in New York, we were both working on our computer and you had the thought let's put on netflix and uh, you put on this film of uh sorry was it iron sky no it wasn't iron sky iron sky was awesome but you put on this this film that was a uh you know mid-20th century something it was in color so it it kind of been too early like uh was peter cushing going to the center of the earth yes it was peter in in a giant (laughs) dildo in a giant dildo looking drilling machine with uh where the uh that's that's just function that's just physics dictates that it has to be a giant dildo (laughs) and a like a cone shape a kind of cone shaped dildo with uh with the head, if you will, rotating as it burrowed into the uh, into the center of the earth, and there was no way we were going to, you know, with that that remote in your hand, would ever push pause or stop on that film. Like once we were in, we were in until the bitter bitter end. I mean, it was it was good in a mystery science theater three thousand way. It was because they were like it was one of those things where like they go to the center of the earth, and there's like a lot of hot chicks that are scantily clad. Oh yeah. For them. Well, it's hot at the center of the earth because you're, you're, you're near the core. <laughs> so the women naturally need to disrobe. Um, yeah, uh, I, it, uh, sure. It was good for certain definitions of good that are diametrically opposed to the everyday way in which we use that word. Um, I suppose I should answer. Uh, yes. I am. I am about halfway through uh, watching the films that I will need to watch to uh, vote on the SAG awards. 
SAG Awards were last night, man. Yes, I, I watched the whole thing. They went until like 1230 in the morning, and it was really epic. So, As a, as a card-carrying, you know, AFL-CIO-affiliated member of the Screen Actors Guild, or uh, not the Screen Actors Guild, of SAG-AFTRA, which is uh, the, the new name of that union now that it's merged with the TV one. Um, I don't, uh, I, I got all the screeners. I have everything on DVD. And by the way, they did, they distribute a lot of them digitally now, which is awesome because it's so much easier than dealing with the, the plastic discs that come in the mail and that are actually only standard def. Um, but I did not watch, uh, I did not watch all the movies that they, that they got sent to me. It was better than it was last year when, um, I was on the nominating committee and I got like, I think I got like 60 or 70 movies uh, over the course of a couple months. And I don't know how the hell you're supposed to watch all that. I honestly, I made it through about 50 uh, and, and did, did my nominating. But this year I, I had the, the feeling that like, unlike a lot of like, I'm just trying to like casting back over good films that are, that are artfully made, uh, well-crafted, and also sort of entertaining. Like, uh, The Godfather is the prime example of that, where it's like this monument to uh, the power of cinema and this shining beacon in cinema history, but also it's just a damn good movie, one and two, to to watch. Or like... uh, um, I don't know. The I usual way like about network. Uh, oh, usual suspects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usual suspects. Network is another. I mean, network is another great one. It's a blast to watch, and uh, and also you you get the sense that it is a nutritious meal, right? I get the sense that like the 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 pleasure has been abstracted out of your nutritious meals around award season, uh, so much that like I just I I couldn't bring myself to uh to watch like 12 years a slave because it's it's uh, the same way i couldn't bring myself to watch the passion of the christ like i i i don't like watching torture it's awful and and unpleasant and you know i don't know not not fun so i feel like i feel like i didn't do my duty i didn't exercise my the franchise as a you know as a extremely minor marginal participant in every year's sort of awards extravaganza that goes on around this time but also i sort of don't know uh, a lot about the films that are going on this year, the things that I'm supposed to have have watched. Like, I don't know. Like, Matt, is there something that you've noticed? Can we do a trend piece about, like, uh, about this year's... Um, you know, prestige motion picture. Are, are you asking Matt because you're confident he got all the way through them and you think that I stopped halfway? <laughs> I just like left the theater. I was like, I'll come back for the three thirty. I gotta right. go get lunch. But yeah, well, the, the Netflix, the Netflix experience is you probably click over to to something else, right? It would be like leaving one theater in the middle, walking into a different theater, right? Re- <laughs> buying more popcorn, walking into a different theater, watching a whole other movie, and then returning to a later screening of the. There should every movie theater should have one theater. That's always playing all the episodes of Twenty Four end to end in real time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, Matt, mean, he asked you a question, so you should answer the question. For me, that's there that's was Star actually, Trek. Actually, yeah. uh, something I did notice because I, I've been thinking, sort of comparing and contrasting uh, the Wolf of Wall Street and American Hustle, which are uh, to, to me they're they're kind of similar movies. They're movies about uh, 
con artists, about people that are sort of skirting skirting the law in various ways. They're period pieces. They're uh, pieces that use a character study to say something larger about America. Um, but they also they they start out in similar ways, and then instead of starting at the beginning, they 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 pull a uh, in medias res, and that. Um, in the case of American Hustle, you begin with with uh, Christian Bale preparing himself to run this con on on the mayor, um, and then you cut back to the beginning, and it's like, how did how did I wind up here in this hotel room trying to con the mayor? Um, and then in uh, in The Wolf of Wall Street, you begin with him sort of at the height of his power, living in the mansion, uh, 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 stoned on quaaludes, trying to fly the helicopter into his own backyard uh, with his white uh, Don Johnson Ferrari, and then you flash back to like, you know, how did I how how did I rise to these heights? Let's see how I began. And I guess I was sort of thinking it's like, I, I feel like a lot of movies pull this trick and it's not always, you know, I mean, I, I hate, I hate to say that like it's, it's not legit or like they, they should not have done that, but I sort of feel like it's a little bit of a cheap trick to start things out with a bang to sort of basically like what you do is you go through your screenplay, you find a really interesting page from the middle and you photocopy that and you put it at the <laughs> beginning and that makes the beginning of your movie a lot more exciting. And then you just stick the title. It would be like, it would be like in, if in like gravity, it begins with like this big accident in space. And then, and then while Sandra Bullock is flying through space, she's like, what am I doing in space anyway? And it's like nine <laughs> months earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just laughing to myself because I'm like thinking back to like the ancient oral tradition poets of like the great Imadius race epics where like there was one guy who was telling the story in order right there's one guy who like told us the odyssey all the way through and then there was another guy whose job it was or girl you know a woman whose job it was to like listen for a good part to start an act <laughs> and it's like we'll just cut it here and then we'll jump back to the beginning and that'll be totally awesome because this the whole beginning part that you read was really boring and now we're going to start like intensely with uh uh, with the, this totally awesome spectacular spectacularness, well, the, the, that, I'm, yeah. right? Like, uh, I, it's ama- It would be amazing if there were like script doctors for the old yeah. or- oral poets, <laughs> or like that they read like story and pasting, like, like cutting things up and scotch taping them together, like predates paper cutting and scotch tape. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You you reorder your stones onto yeah. which you've carved the like the proto letters of your your not yet alphabet. Right. And you would put that, them. Would that be like a legitimate? thing for like a translator to do that like when you translate it you're like you know what i decided to move this canto to the beginning just to just to suck the reader in well i really actually i i mean you joke but that actually does does happen and in robert fagel's um translation not fagel's in in richmond Lattimore's translation of the odyssey uh well, you just read all the versions of now, Mister Fancy Pants. You know every translator of the Odyssey, don't I mean, you? Jeez. I've I've read a lot of versions of the Odyssey, right? Okay. Like, but I started with with the Richmond Lattimore one in high school, and um, it's it's the thing is it's line for line, and there are line numbers that go along that correspond. Let Richard Lattimore, Lattimore is the worst. Like if 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 if, if translations of the Odysseys were gateway drugs, like and, and Lattimore is a gateway <laughs> drug to the Odyssey that everyone has to learn as a child, like no one would do the actual drugs. Like if marijuana was as bad a gateway drug as uh, as Lattimore is for the Odyssey, then the war on drugs, uh, which has been such an expensive, terrible waste of time, uh, would have ended long ago. But like, a, uh, but like into the country by putting them in a giant horse and like putting them in the Mexican border. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can't believe they didn't try that on Breaking Bad. 
<laughs> there was a turtle. There was a guy with his head on a turtle. Definitely. Actually, by the way, Breaking Bad, you know, the pilot starts uh, in medias race, as it were, but it, not in the classical sense of of in medias race, because that that has to do with. Um, uh, with with the audience sort of knowing the story, right, and yeah. knowing the way that it comes out, rather than rather than just being kind of a narrative fluffer, right, yeah. just a narrative way to like get some get some uh, sensation and excitement and uh, you know uh, get you going for thirty yeah. seconds in this sort of barrage of of sort of sensory <laughs> overload way yeah. that the movies have these days, uh, and then like you know, yeah. hey, I'll sit with this movie now for an hour or so. Because it's uh, uh, it's gonna get good soon. I know, See, right? Break, Breaking Bad starts in Medias Race the same way Underworld starts in Medias Race, yeah, which right. is someone with a gun and no pants on. Right? Like, <laughs> that's when things are exciting. That's why Underworld doesn't start with like, oh, all the vampires are dead. No, we have a lady in skin tight outfit in the subway with a gun right. pointing it at things, just like Walter White and his struggle in the desert. But it's, it's okay not to wear pants if you are in fact a werewolf. Because <laughs> they're just going to rip off anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we've just cracked the Breaking Bad interpretation that no one else ever understood. But the, I mean, but so the the underlying structure of the Odyssey sometimes gets changed by the translators. And and Lattimore, who I agree is the most boring by far of all the translations of of the Odyssey that I've read, um, actually like lampshades where he is messing with the structure. Right? Really? He, oh yeah, yeah. And the, that like in the marginal line numbers, they you know he has them every five lines or whatever, like like you do in a poem. But um, sometimes it's like four eighty one, four eighty five, four eighty three, four eighty two, four eighty six. You know, uh, four eighty four. I just I forgot which one I left out and had to put the, <laughs> had to figure out what to put it in. Like when he, when he is reordering the Greek in order to make more comprehensible English or English that he thinks is or a version of the Greek that he thinks is less corrupted because, you know, recall that, that these things were um, uh, actually kind of like the, sh- the plays of Shakespeare were uh, a loose structure or were like a, a compendium out of which you could pick the parts that suited the audience, you know, uh, that, you, uh, that you liked, right? That, that the, what the audience would like, right? The, the audience that was listening to you at the time, just as, you know... Um, in, in Shakespeare's play, I mean, they talk about the two hours traffic of our stage, and that's laughable if you read the second quarter text of Hamlet, which takes four, four and a half hours to go through, even if you talk really, really, really fast. Um, they left out... <laughs> which they, I recommend you do, by the way. It makes <laughs> Hamlet much more interesting if you get the Micro Machines guy on there. That's what Mel Gibson did when he but did But it's his. just nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous swords in order to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing and them to die uh, to sleep no more, and by sleep to say that we end that heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh there to tis a consummation to decide to to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep, to pants, to dream. Aye, there's the rub. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Punch the keys. Um, no, you, they, and it's very likely that that bands of players and you know um, Homeric oral poets or uh, poetry performers, singers, I guess at the end of at the end of the feast, um, that they would uh, uh, leave out certain parts or adapt adapt certain things right so so the odyssey this is a this is a compendium and the text that the text that we have yeah. is not really the poem as it was intended uh, uh as we were in, intended to to have it which i mean i don't know which says something about the um which says something about the uh the interesting um 
uh, which says something about the 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 part of the, the the interesting role of translation in conveying to you the structure of the Odyssey versus something like the Aeneid, which is like a literary work. You know, it was written down. It was written down in this form, and the verbal art the verbal art is less sort of conventional and more like. Uh, uh, more like literature, poetry, as we understand it um, today, as something that's sort of carefully wrought. And then, of course, the, the, I guess the reason why the, there's the Medias Reis and the Aeneid, certainly one, one could say that it is because Homer did it. And mm-hmm. then it, it sort of becomes a thing that you do if you want your poem to seem big and important, is that you start it with a scene, and then you have somebody start telling a story, and, and then mm-hmm. uh, you tell the sort of the second uh, chunk of your story in flashback. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then, but of course, the Aeneid starts at a much more exciting part of its story than the Odyssey starts in terms of its story, right? Yeah, the Odyssey, the storm, right? The storm is coming yeah. in. Wait, which not storm the Halle Berry storm, right? No, no, not the Halle Berry storm. <laughs> <laughs> what happens to a founder of Rome struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. So, <laughs> but but yeah, but so the question, so Lattimore changes the structure. The Aeneid kind of calcifies the structure. We have we have sort of like uh, we have these poets that, poems that are sent down through oral tradition, and there's a certain fluidity to the structure. But then at some point, someone decides that the structure has value in itself, right? And that like, or maybe that's what they decide, or maybe they decide that it's a useful convention. But it really seems to me made to really confront that possible opinion that like, no, like this structure is actually telling you something that's important to this story, or is it that it's making the beginning more exciting? I mean, I don't know. I keep getting torn from one side of it to the other. Well, I think oh, it's man. I think it's important to the telling of the story because in the case of in the case of the the Aeneid it's a found it's a foundational epic it's right this is how you know this is how this this great city was founded and this story this story is important because it's telling you the audience why you are awesome mm. right this because is a story of your awesomeness and yeah. and of why you know of why you're awesome so everyone knows everyone knows how the uh, everyone knows how the story turns out. Right. So is that why the usual suspect starts with like the event that ends up being the consummate event of like verbal Kent's storytelling? Because the audience ne- the audience needs to have the opportunity to figure everything out before Chaz Palminteri does. Because really, you know, what is the usual suspects but the story of Chaz Palminteri like trying to figure out, uh, you know, yeah. what. Verbal Kent is trying to tell him the whole time. The usual Suspects is an interesting one because it, it sort of speaks to one of the reasons why you might build the story that way, and that is a mystery, right? Is that something happens at the beginning, and then everybody's trying to figure out like what it is, and the whole thing is is staged in a series of flashbacks that uh, Chas Palminteri is supposedly getting out of Kevin Spacey to try to piece together what exactly went on on the boat, um, and I mean that's a totally legitimate legitimate use of it. I just I get the feeling that that there definitely are movies that that throw in. This technique that decide to start with 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 a scene from the middle, mainly because I mean you know I to, to sort of flatter the screenwriters I could say like for the same reason Virgil does it is because that like great movies in the past have started this way and so it gives your movie this sort of aura of seriousness uh, because you start from the beginning and then you set up a little bit of a mystery you, you purposely obscure something to give the audience a reason to pay closer attention right. As but opposed to like in, in Man of Steel, where you like reorder the scenes largely for the sake of spreading out the Superman fights at like regular intervals. Yeah, that's right. right, right, exactly. You take your story there. You take just all the beats in the story and put them in a blender until yeah. they become this sort of undifferentiated <laughs> mass yeah. of of film with you know with an action sequence every fifteen minutes and then yeah. like a dog dying or something. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Matt. I interrupted you, but what were you no, saying? No. 
I think I think Man of Steel is actually a, a, a good example because I mean you know the the writers of that let's see David Goyer, who um, I don't know you know I I don't think I guess I, he wasn't involved with Lost was he involved with Lost I I sort of feel that like uh, in the post Lost era that the there's a little bit of J.J. Abrams sort of infected everybody, and there becomes this feeling that like what audiences want is a is a mystery box to unlock, <laughs> and they want something to try to figure out. Um, yep. Which you is know, the plot of Hellraiser, I believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just like, if, if anyone saw um, Mission Impossible 3, which is sort of like, you know... It was okay, but not great. It was the one with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the one then, where they have to climb the the, uh, the big tower in Dubai, right? No, that was the most recent one. That was four. Oh. So they Three climb was, the rocks. Okay. Yeah, That's and it's right. No, it, and it starts. It starts with the scene um, where Tom Cruise has been captured, and he is being interrogated by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Philip Seymour and, and his wife is also captured, tied up right in front of it. And this is not a spoiler because it's literally the first scene of the movie. <laughs> um, and so the, the the and the scene is like, I am going to shoot your wife unless you tell me certain information. And Tom Cruise just claims repeatedly he doesn't know, and he begs him, and he threatens him, and then finally Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, pulls the trigger. And as he pulls the trigger, there's like dramatic special. I think. I think we literally sort of zoom into the barrel of the gun as it explodes with fire, and that's the title of the movie, right? And this is, to me, this is sort of a classic J.J. Ames beginning, which is you take a very provocative, very cliffhangery scene, and you put it at the beginning, and then you go backwards, and, and in, I mean, this is like any given episode of Lost, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is that, like, it's all about telling the story out of order to, to add narrative weight to it. That, I mean, this is a very unkind uh, interpretation <laughs> of Lost, by the way. I'm... And and you could you could definitely you losties out there can like argue with me that like you know for, and first of all like th- that's not necessarily an illegitimate thing to do which is to like tell a story out of order in no order I mean to I think e- interest you know, sure even even just to create excitement even not yeah. not the even in the sort of uh, the fallen right way the uh, post post lapsarian just to bring it back to my <laughs> my favorite the unsurpassed and unsurpassable work of literature in any language uh, uh, paradise lost right like the <laughs> in this fallen world where it's for shock and sensation rather than for sort of larger narrative purpose or larger larger purpose having to do with the kind of transaction between the storyteller and the audience right like i'm thinking of reservoir dogs which has this this just gut punch of a scene with harvey keitel uh you know, holding on to the the uh, a guy who's dying in the back of the back of a car has been shot or something, and uh, it's just this incredible um, bit of acting, and it's super raw, super intense. It's uh, uh, it's hard to watch in some in some sense. It's really difficult, but what it does is it sort of puts you off balance. It sort of disorients you and brings you into the, the, the world of the film kind of on your back foot or off your off your game a, a little bit, uh, right? Because we're so... One of the reasons why this... And a, and a, slightly, a slightly less cynical interpretation for the, the narrative structure of The Man of Steel, um, one of the reasons why stories are like this is because everyone is so goddamn knowing about everything now, right? It's and and a lot of this a lot of this stuff has to do with like what are the what are the lazy ways we can sort of create sensationalism and create excitement rather than like doing the hard work of storytelling, which is as hard as it's ever been. Uh, you know, I don't know, and maybe harder still because we have more more information. We can see all five translations, you know, extant translations of the Odyssey into English now, and like judge among them, you know. Um, 
as Ani DeFranco said in her her uh, spoken word piece, "Fuel." Um, uh, everything is cross market. Oh no! What? What is, she, uh, what is the line I want? It's um. Oh, uh, we all know the difference between the font of twenty percent more and the font of teriyaki, right? And this is her her way of describing the the media landscape that that we live in. Like everyone has become, um, you know, sites like Wikipedia and TV tropes and whatever have made everyone so sophisticated about about everything now that this sort of these moves to sort of shock and sensationalize um, are a natural narrative response to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it possible to, I mean, is this, but if, well, okay, so it sounds like you want to sort of condemn these sorts of choices to make things more exciting, but wouldn't any story be made more exciting just by changing up the structure a little bit? So oh, that yeah, sorry. sure, sorry, I don't, I, don't, don't take my derisive tone of voice for, the, for the, the, you know, the idea that I actually am derisive of these things. I'm, I'm actually, yes. I'm quite sympathetic of people trying to, you know, trying to tell, uh, you know, trying to tell a story, right? Like, you can't. Um, I, I don't know. I, I remember there was a Jack Ryan movie that came out this weekend and I watched recently on Netflix, the hunt for red October. And I've, I think I've talked on this podcast before about how coy the violence is. You don't even see the muzzle flash on the weapon in, in the, or maybe it was in the Downton Abbey recaps. So I don't know why I was talking about the hunt for red October and the Downton Abbey recaps, but you don't even see, don't react well to bullets. (laughs) You don't, you don't even see, really see the gun go off in, uh, in the hunt for red October. And you, uh, you compare that with with films today, like uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I I haven't seen this new Jack Ryan. No, nobody has. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, this this film. But you have these, you know, you have these. Um, you have these things, and then there's, I mean, then the, so you know, I have great sympathy for for uh, for filmmakers who kind of have to speak this language. Or, uh, but okay, but but I kind of do want to contest these choices, <laughs> and obviously this is a, this is a blanket statement. But like, imagine like a great movie like like The Godfather Two. Imagine if it begins with Robert De Niro and he's on the rooftops in Little Italy and it's San Gennaro and he's going from rooftop to rooftop and you're not sure what's this guy doing jumping over the rooftops, and then he goes down into a building and waits for. A man, and the man comes out of the shadows, and Robert De Niro pulls out a gun, pushes a pillow to the barrel of the gun, and just as he's about to shoot, cuts to The Godfather Part Two, and then it just is like you know, thirty years earlier. That would be kind of a cheap choice, is just to like you know, oh, let's let's start with a bang, literally. But it's like you know, shouldn't isn't the right way to do it to concentrate on making the beginning of your story more interesting rather than cannibalizing part of the middle of your story? <laughs> oh, I mean, maybe. That sounds like one way of going about it, Killjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that sounds awesome. I think that they, Godfather 2 should streak across it in red bloody font. Right? <laughs> that, that should be a zipline in silhouette. Uh, I don't think that... I've actually never seen Godfather 2, so I have no idea if there's a zipline in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about uh, Robert De Niro ziplining to the new world. <laughs> so okay, but okay. So on one hand, yes, it's possible to go too far and to use these structures as a cheap trick in a way that makes everything worse. And maybe if you're running into a problem where the beginning of your story is boring, then like you know you should you know make the beginning of your story more interesting, right? So like, um, well, okay. But then on the other hand, there are stories that uh, that like go along in a nonlinear sort of way in which like straightening them out would be worse. 
you know, like Memento, you know, for example, which is an obvious freaking one. Although, I guess now that you think about it, it would be possible to do, has anyone cut Memento end-to-end, like, taking out all the non-linearity <laughs> and, like, sort of stretching it out in one, in one like, straightforward, uh, uh, straightforward narrative? I, I wonder. I'm going to look for, like, Memento <laughs> linear cut online and see if I can find anything. But, of course, that's, uh, you know, I feel like we can make a distinction between movies that are really meant to be scattershot like scenes all over the continuum and movies which basically go chronologically from beginning to end but just take a single moment and pick them out and put them at the beginning perhaps before the opening titles to sort of like uh jumpstart things right 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 this um, is, i think there's yeah. this is a fun game this is kind of like the uh the sean connery game which is where you say uh the lines from any film as though sean connery uh, we're saying them, or I suppose you could try it with a uh, with an epic poem um, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world. Jeez, you're really insisting on this classical literature kick for this podcast. <laughs> Ama Troyi qui primus ab orish Italiam. I feel like I want to go back into your childhood to find out what motivated you to get to this point in your life where you were quoting movie lines and Aeneid lines in Sean Connery. No, no, that's it. That's the thing I don't like, though, right? Like, because that has to do with the, like, um, the psychology. Psychologization, the psychologization um, trend in storytelling, which is like, which is, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? Like, I don't care uh, with Johnny Depp's Willy Wonka. I don't care about the flashbacks about like him going to the dentist. That's that's terrible. Right. I I don't want (laughs) to know that. I want I want there to be some freaking magic in the world. Is that too much to ask? Right. I want I want characters to be inexplicable. Somehow, right. especially the kind of fantasy characters like that, and when when uh, when you do it, it becomes a cop show where it's like you know, or a, a superhero origin story, right? Where it's like, right. well, when I was when I was young, I saw my parents gone down, and then I knew I would make chocolate bars. And it's, I think it's worth mentioning that, like, back when we uh, we had the the six months where all we did was talk about the Dark Knight and all the ways it was awesome. Yeah. One of the things that we all agreed on was that the fact that the, he resisted an origin story for the Joker, and in fact mocked the idea of an origin story for the Joker by having him present numerous origin stories for himself, um, was one of the greatest things about that character, and was one of the the smartest decisions is to to resist this idea that like we need to know every formative moment that that makes these people from regular people into these larger than life archetypes in in true homeric fashion because you recall that odysseus when he returns to ithaca in uh 1920 21 i I mean books 1920 or 21 uh, (laughs) you mean when he and lady edith decide to like (laughs) ride in an automobile yes (laughs) and uh right yeah uh books 1920 somewhere around there in the Odyssey, right? He is disguised as a uh, as a shepherd or a goat herd on Ithaca, and he tells the false story of his his life. So there's something about this move by Christopher Nolan that is that is very deeply rooted in uh, in classical literature. Though I like the um, I like the Sean Connery game. I like the uh, the say lines from Downton Abbey in a, as an Italian mobster game that we have that <laughs> Pete and I have come up with on the uh, on the Downton Abbey recaps that we are presently in medias race with and um 
but and I also like this game of like straighten out the narrative of uh, of movies that that do a nonlinear narrative and uh, in medias race eyes the uh, uh, the narrative of, of films that aren't um, yeah. you know that aren't like could, could you imagine Snow White where the prince is like leaning down over her and leaning down leaning down and their lips get tantalizingly close no so close so close so close they're about to touch and hi ho yeah, that actually hi-ho. sounds see this so this is what we talked about we, we talked about this where it's like whether you, the audience knows the way that the story is going to end i think is a is a big factor in the value of making this sort of flashback uh because it's um it's about the characters I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of want to kind of also talk a little bit more about the like the psychologization of this that you discussed because um, the the way of going back, going back in time in a story so that you can explain that something happened that caused a certain to feel a certain a person to feel a certain way such that like the events that happened that transpired took place like that to me doesn't match the experience of how psychology affects action. Right, like, mm-hmm. like when we're talking about like inevitability and really like an, an ancient Greek idea of fate, which we did also sort of talk about in the Man of Steel podcast. You know, we're talking about an inevitable and inexorable procession of events that are going to happen, and we're destined to happen, and we're always going to happen. Like this is the string that was measured and cut that is your life, and the sense of finding out the things that came before is uh, not necessarily strictly a revelation of the causes of the thing. Right, like it's like when we go when when the prince bends down to kiss Snow White in our hypothetical in Medias race Snow White, we are we, we can go back. We can do it in two ways. We can go back into the beginning of the story if we must go back, and we can show the like unlikely series of events that lead up to this sort of primal gesture taking place, and then we can sort of raise the question of whether whether this is something that always needed to happen or wasn't going to happen. Was Snow White always going to be kissed by this prince? What is that inevitability? T- tell you when you see snow white in her perspective you know when she's with the dwarves and she's happy and she seems to sort of be a girl and not really have matured into sort of a, a binary other just yet right like uh, as it were well, it's, like, so what you're i mean what you're talking about is a it's it's kind of like the the audience for the aeneid right it's a it's a justification of privilege i think that that way it becomes a justification of privilege right because the guy's a prince snow white's going to be a princess and she's going to be queen one day right so she is part of the the royalty of the upper most upper classes of you know whatever dwarf kingdom she lives in and uh right like so the story in that in that um instance in our hypothetical you know in medias race snow white that begins with an almost 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 kiss is is sort of going back and looking for clues it becomes an effort of of detection and i'll just mention that like in college when i was reading the fitzgerald translation of the of the odyssey um i uh i attended a provocative lecture where uh the lecturer proposed that all all narrative is a type of detective story and all reading is a type of detection uh or rather that detective stories are a model for uh interpretation right that that you're sort of you're sort of looking for clues throughout um throughout a narrative so you'd be looking for clues to to see why snow white is you know is the object of such uh uh uh, highfalutin attentions right I guess I, I sort of want to divide it into two different missions, and then both serve this same engagement, 
which is a flashback can show you events um, that might have caused this thing to happen, right? So you see the thing, and then you flash back, and it's like, these are the things that might have caused this thing to happen. And you're sort of figuring out which ones did and all that other stuff. Or you can flash back and say, these are the events that might not have caused it to happen, but did. Right, like it's like because you because that knowledge that you know what where the thing is going changes your perspective on the events that that previously follow. So it's like and and then again with detective stories, is not a lot of the pleasure of the detective story really depend on there being a lot of frustrating dead ends or, or not necessarily frustrating, but there being a lot of things that lead you in other directions, a lot of misdirection. Mm-hmm. Right, like so the detective story is on one hand the satisfaction of finding the way that the story came about to its beginning, right, which is the murder. Right, but it's also the pleasure of finding out and, and the sort of relief of finding out all of the ways the other things that could have happened that didn't, which to some sense creates a tension of our sense, like, well, this thing didn't necessarily have to have happened or did it. I guess there's yeah. a sublimity in that that kind of creates an artistic beauty. Um, in, in, Wait, in unpack, a unpack that a little. What do you mean by that when you say there's so, a sublimity in so, that? Okay, so if you have a fated event that needs to happen – Right, and you flash back, and you're showing a bunch of things that happen that um, would seem to lead the story in another direction, right? So, like you know, you, you you know, you know that there was a murder, and even even if let's say you know at the beginning that like the butler did it, that's the trick, right? Is do you know at the beginning that the butler did it? Then if you go back and do you see a bunch of ways in which someone else might have done it, right? And so this action simultaneously frees us from an idea of predestination, an idea of inevitability, an idea of doom. Right in both the sort of Middle English, Old English sense, and like the contemporary sense, you know, the guy with the robot mask, and also like the sense of anything that's inevitable, right? Like it sort of frees us from that, but it also reinforces it. So it is it is sublime in the sense that it is both kind of beautiful and terrible and happy and sad, in that it is both telling you that like your life could happen any way it's going to happen, but there's a way in which it's going to happen, and these ideas coexist in an ambiguity, and that ambiguity can be present in good flashbacks, like in the usual suspects, when we flash back and like the story could have turned out any number of different ways, but it eventually comes around to the way in which it did turn out. And I know we don't start mm-hmm. the story knowing who Kaiser Sose is, but maybe that's not a necessary precondition. Maybe just knowing that it ends. I know, and I also know that the that the heist at the beginning of the Usual Suspects isn't actually like an intermediate race. Formally speaking, it's something that's repeated through like narrativization. But I think it serves a similar purpose. But does that make yeah. more sense in terms of what I was talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's it's re- it's repeated and and in the repetition, it's elaborated on yeah. significantly, right? Like there's a uh, at the beginning, there's a sort of capsule version of it, and then. When when you actually get to the long thing, when you get to the the uh, elaboration of it, it sort of comes out in a lot more yeah. in a lot more detail and with different digressions and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Although I might suggest you could you could do something different with it, which is that you you purposely distance the audience from the character by giving them information that the character doesn't. You basically. Uh, artificially create dramatic irony. Um, I mean, a good example, let, let's say Fight Club, okay? So Fight Club mm-hmm. is a movie that basically tells a story about a guy, and he's sort of, uh, he can't sleep, he's sort of stuck in a malaise, and he meets another guy, right? He makes a friend, and this friend sort of like, 
changes his life, right? Um, but that's not how the movie begins. The movie begins with this friend, this uh, uh, the uh, Brad Pitt character, Tyler Durden, pointing a gun at him, seemingly about to kill him. And so this is something that the audience knows going into it. And so that when we meet Brad Pitt for the first time, Edward Norton is like, oh, here's a cool guy that I could be friends with. But we as the audience, we don't feel that because we know exactly what's going to happen. And we know the only question is how long is it going to take and how is it going to happen before these two are mortal enemies and they're they're literally trying to kill each other and so it's like we we don't share the experiences with edward norton you know because we have we have a sort of almost like a god's uh, omniscient perspective of like you know the, this is fate and this has to happen um and and as as opposed to like seeing the events unfold linearly and feeling like anything could happen you, you simply don't know what's going to happen in, in the, I mean, what would happen to Fight Club? Do you feel like if if you were to uh, if you were to to lay it out end to end the way if you were to rearrange the stones into the way that they they should flow in natural time? Uh, I mean, I guess you would start with a bunch of trips to IKEA, <laughs> <laughs> and right. it would start with the it would start with the scene where they're pricing all of the IKEA, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it would be a lot of scenes in the office with the copy machine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think it would change the movie a lot. The only difference would be that you don't know that 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 the Fight Club is going to build into this horrible, this this out of control, potentially destructive thing. And also, I think it's it's critical that at the beginning of Fight Club, you there's a piece of information that is withheld to you, which is the fact that these buildings are empty. That there are lots of bombs, but nobody is going to get killed. That, and, and I, I think this is important that, like, you know, because Tyler Durden reveals later, it's like, all the people belong to us. We cleared out the buildings. We're not murderers. We merely want to destroy the credit information. But at the beginning of Fight Club, you feel like what you're about to witness is an act of horrific terrorism and mass murder. Yeah, it's a, it's a notion, it's more a notional act of violence against the, the idea of the system of, yeah. uh, of capitalism rather than being, uh, rather than being the, um, uh, rather than being something, uh, you know, uh, rather than being something that's targeted at a particular person. But I'm still, I'm still stuck on this, on this idea that he, you know, he's going to the bereavement groups, right? And he's, um, uh, what, what is the line? Oh, excuse, excuse the, the salty language, but uh, Bob had bitch tits, right? Yes. Is, the, is the line, and he's, he's burrowing into Meat Love's chest, and then he meets Helena Bonham Carter, and then he, he is in a uh, uh, he's in a parking lot by himself, and he meet. Oh my god. You guys. I've just had the greatest realization of my life. Wait, what is it? are the same guy. So at the end of Wild Things, the movie with Nev Campbell and Denise Richards, all the important scenes are in the credits. 
at the very end of the movie. All the th- all the things that explain the intention of the filmmakers come. Like, yeah, like what what her teeth are doing, yes. lying on the ground. Uh, in the, yeah, and how that how that all happened, right? Like the intentions of the filmmakers are communicated to you when everybody is walking out of the theater. I think that that is kind of beautiful. Do you think it would have been better if they'd put that in the actual movie and put Kevin Bacon's penis after the credits? Because <laughs> that's what they did the opposite in the in that movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Just because I felt inadequate as a as a you know barely pubescent uh, young man w- looking at Kevin Bacon's penis. <laughs> well, I have no objection to the, the presence of the movie. I'm just saying. Well, what did Wild what did Wild Things choose to put before the credits if it wasn't putting what the movie was about? And the answer is like people in pools and like sultry makeouts and like Kevin Bacon taking a shower. Like that's that's what's in the actual movie. Uh, and so, I mean, I guess you know, what, what do you put in your what do you put in your container once you figure out what the shape of your container is, right? <laughs> and the answer is Kevin's bacon is what you put in your container. Yes. Right, absolutely. I mean, physics dictates the the shape of the container, really. <laughs> For January twentieth, twenty fourteen, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode two hundred ninety, the In Medias Race of choice.